But let me go ahead and, and start us with a prayer this morning, and then uh, we're going to be going through chapter 3 of our, of our book. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this morning, Lord. We're grateful that we can even gather in a building with air conditioning. Uh, Lord, the, the comforts that we enjoy, we so easily take for granted. We get to come and read your word in our own language this morning where we can understand it. Most of us can read so we can hear and we can not just hear it taught but read it ourselves and we get to do it in the comforts of chairs and air conditioning. We're a blessed people. Lord, help us where we tend to complain and grumble. Lord, help us to rejoice. This is the day you've made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. Lord, help us to Learn more from your word this morning, even about the conscience. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, well, let me invite you, if you've, if you've got uh, your book, let me invite you to go ahead and turn. Uh, chapter 3 is where we're going to be starting. And actually, um, you're at chapter 3, but I'm actually going to ask you to go back just a couple pages. Um, pages 42 and 43. Richard taught last week chapter 2. Excellent. It's recorded, so if you missed it, would encourage you to go uh, listen to it so you can uh, keep up, up to date on where we are in this book. But just wanted to hit, this was important at the very end of it. Um, it's going to be important for the rest of the book, so a couple things to highlight. So in page 42, when he says, so how should we define the conscience? Um, really helpful that we just have this working definition. We keep this in our memories as we're going through this. Um, so our authors, after looking at all 30 you know, plus places in the New Testament where that word conscience is used, they came up with this definition. The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. So a little emphasis there. The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. So one thing we're going to talk about, not one of us here has an infallible conscience. Not one of us here has a conscience that is completely on par with what's right and wrong truly. Now, it's what we believe is right and wrong, you know, and a lot of times it's what we will go tooth and nail for to say, this is right, and yet it's a good reminder that we, we need to remind ourselves that none of us, even those who are believers, so we're going to get into this a little bit later, but even those who are Christians, sanctification doesn't just pop, happen, right? So even when you trust Christ, become a believer, it's not as though you now have a perfect moral compass of right and wrong, and you can't be challenged on anything. So I think that's just helpful for us to keep in mind as we're going. In the chapters that we're, we're about to get to, it's going to be really helpful because it's going to be talk about recalibrating your conscience. Sometimes you're going to realize, I'm wrong on this, and you actually are going to need to change the way you're thinking, even if it's something you've grown up with your whole life, even if it's something that you've taught from a very little boy or girl this is right, this is wrong. But if you come up to the Word of God and it says differently, we read this earlier, if the conscience, your conscience says one thing, God's Word says another thing, always obey the Word of God. Ten out of ten times, always obey the Word of God. So conscience, your conscience, the conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. And then he goes on and 
I'll just uh, hit these highlights. Number one, he says, conscience produces different results for people based on different moral standards. Uh, a couple sentences, he says, what you believe is right and wrong is not necessarily the same as what actually is right and wrong. Just a helpful reminder. Uh, number two, conscience can change. So your conscience changes based on where you are at points in time. At a later chapter, it's going to be really helpful. Joel Gass is actually going to be teaching this chapter. Joel's had experience on the mission field. You grow up in a culture, and sometimes you feel like your culture, what is right and wrong in your culture, is what is right and wrong universally. And then you go to another land, another people group, another place on earth, and you say, they don't do things like they do in America. They must be wrong. No, not necessarily. So your conscience can change based on where you are in life and different things like that. Uh, third, conscience functions as a guide, monitor, witness, and judge. Um, that little uh, graph, the graphs they have in this book are super helpful. So that little graph where it talks about guide looks forward, it warns you before you do wrong, it urges you to do, to do what's right. Uh, the, the monitor, witness, judge, it looks backward on something you've already done, it accuses and condemns you when you do something wrong, and it commends and defends you when you do something right. So like I said, super brief overview, but chapter three, we're going to dig into what should you do when your conscience condemns you? It's a really, really helpful question. I'm praying it's going to be very encouraging for many of you. It's easy to just beat up yourself in the Christian life. Once again, sanctification, progressive. None of us have arrived. And so when you start treating others and even yourself, right, as if you should have arrived, you start beating yourself down. And so what do you do when your conscience condemns you? That's what we're going to look at in this chapter. Just a reminder, uh, he says this in this chapter, but it was said earlier, the conscience is a gift. So think about that. I think sometimes we want to, our conscience bothers us because there's a sense in which that's what it's actually intended to do. When you do wrong, you can't get it out of your mind. That can seem like an annoyance, but it's a gift. That's a good thing, that that God is actually calling you back to do something that's right, right? So he he, uh, makes it similar to, you know, the fact that we can touch. That's what he talks about earlier, the fact that you can touch. It's a good thing that you have nerves and you can sense things because you don't just go touch a stove when it's hot, Right? Because that's a good thing that it, it lets you know you shouldn't go there, right? That hurts when you do that. So the conscience is going to act in a similar fashion. So conscience is a gift. Uh, page 46, he talks about a clean conscience for the lost. And I think this is helpful. Turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to look at a few places um, in, our, in our Bibles. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to see if we've got some um, volunteers who will read loudly for, for all of us. Uh, to be able to hear, but Colossians chapter 2. Who's willing to read? There we go. We read, Kristen, you won't be able to read next week, so this is perfect. Uh, can you read verses 13 through 14 for us?
great. So this reality that all of us, bar none, all of us who have sinned, you have a debt. No one wants to be in debt, right, to, to, to anything. So if you've, if you've ever been in a place where you've been in a financial debt that you, you can't pay back, you know, you know the burden of just the weight of it. You can try to shake it. You can try to go do something else. You can try to get your mind off it. And yet you're going to have continual reminders there's a burden. There's something I can't pay back. I feel it's, it's like chains. It's like shackles. No matter what you do, no matter how you try to put it out of your mind, you're still in debt, right? And so that's the reality of sin. That, that you are indebted because you have sinned against a holy and righteous God. So all of us have a massive amount of debt that is piled up against us. And the problem is, no matter how hard we work, no matter how long we try to work for it, you'll never make a dent in it, ever. It will just grow more and more and more. And yet, the beauty of the gospel right here what did Christ do with that debt? He canceled it. He nailed it. it it's, it's done. So our authors talk about this just being a beautiful reality, even as you're evangelizing. This should be something that should come up as you talk to people about one of the beauties of the gospel is that you don't have to live with that debt any longer. The, the sin debt that you have that you know you can't ever repay, it's canceled. It's gone. That's freedom, right? So that's good news for those who are still in their sins. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, who's willing to read? I think I saw a hand over this way. Someone? Oh, Ryan, Baisley's. Tag team it out. There we go. Verses 13 through 14. Hebrews 9, 13 through 14. Once again, just verses of freedom, a purified conscience, not a perfected conscience, okay? We're going we're gonna to continue to stress this, that no one, even at salvation, has a perfect conscience, right? A perfect moral gauge of all things, but a cleansed and a purified conscience. This is such good news for those who are in their sin, right? Those who lay down at night, they may put a good face on it throughout the day. They may block out so much of what they've done. They may block out all these things, but, and we can suppress our conscience. We can, you know, if you, the more you continue to suppress it, the less it is going to speak to you. That's just the reality of it. But most people who haven't seared that conscience, at some point when they're alone, all the, the uh, activity and the noise is out, when they lay on their bed, they know they're not right, and that's going to eat at you and eat at you. And so 
The, the, the beauty of the gospel is liberation. It's forgiveness of sins. And that's what our authors talk about. So for those, this is what the conscience does when it condemns you. For when you're an unbeliever, you need, to, you need to aim at that when you're evangelizing an unbeliever. Um, verse four, or, uh, page 47, the, the last paragraph before the next section, he says, This word, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to redeem all who trust in Christ. God forgives and covers all their sin, and he never counts that sin against them for all eternity canceling the record of debt. Guys, we don't, we don't even, we don't really grasp this. Even when we forgive others in this life, normally, if you're a sinner like me, you hold on to it a little bit. I can forgive someone, and then later, if they do something similar again, what am I going to say? You just did that two weeks ago. You just did that two weeks ago. Why are you doing that again? Is that actually forgiving and moving on? No, it's, it's holding that against them. But, but the freedom of having your debt canceled for all eternity, that when we're worshiping God in heaven, he's not going to say, you know what, you remember when you were 27 and you did this? That wasn't good. He's not going to do that. Isn't that free, freeing and liberating to think about the, the gospel and what it does? And so he continues, because he counted that sin. How can he do this? He doesn't just, we're going to talk about this later, but he doesn't just wipe the slate clean like, ah, I just won't, I won't think about that. We'll just forget that happened. How can he forgive you? Because he counted that sin against Christ instead. Only this message can comfort a non-Christian's guilt-wracked conscience. So this is helpful news for the unbeliever. But where I want to spend most of our time is, is the supercharged conscience of the Christian. So what this means for the Christian. So I want you to turn with me Ephesians chapter 3. Pastor Jerry may be gone for a few weeks, but we're not going to get Ephesians out of our, out of our heads. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3. Who's willing to read? Richard. We read verses 7 through 13. Thank you. So, from what he just read, where is the manifold wisdom of God made known? Say it louder. The church. The church shows the manifold witness of God. Now, I want to be careful here. When we're talking about the church in this regard, we're talking about 
those who are trusting in Christ. So, so sometimes the language that's used is visible church, invisible church. What I mean by visible church, so just uh, at, at Audubon Drive Bible Church, on this Sunday morning, there's going to be hundreds of people gathered in this church. Uh, some who have even, you know, made a commitment to be members of this church. There's 168 members of this church right now. That's the visible church. We can see those people. We can see their names on a list. The reality of the invisible church is only God knows the heart, right? So it's possible that they're, of that 168-person membership, some are not actually trusting in Christ. It's possible. Only time tells. I mean, John will say, some went out from us, but they were never of us. Time tells what that actually looks like. This is talking about the invisible church, those who are truly Christ. So in the church, the church that Christ purchased for himself, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I look at the church and I think, I might have done it differently. If you're being honest, once again, I mean, you look at the church from the outside and think, why didn't God just sanctify everyone immediately? When you become a believer, why didn't he just make it easy? And when you trust in Christ, you become a Christian, your conscience is made perfect, you are made perfect, you don't sin anymore, and now we get to enjoy perfect, pure, holy fellowship without any sin at all. That would be a display for the world, right? But he didn't choose to do that. But in the church, the manifold wisdom of God is seen, and God's all wise. There are wise purposes that we're still in this body together, and yet we're not perfectly sanctified. It'd be a whole lot easier in marriage if you just were perfectly sanctified and then you got married. But that doesn't happen. Why? Because actually marriage itself sanctifies you, right? Being in a church, a community full of other people who think about things differently especially second, third tier issues. We're going to hammer this out over the coming weeks. It's good for you to be with those people. The Bible's going to use the language, I love it in Romans, it uses the language of harmony, right? Harmony. Not uniformity, but harmony. Think about a symphony where everyone's playing the same song. They're all playing the same song, but they all have different parts, right? And when those come together it provides a much more beautiful song than if they were all just playing the same parts and the same song, right? So the manifold wisdom of God is seen in this reality that we're not all perfectly sanctified. And I think this is, this is helpful for us because what this means is as individual Christians, once again, you're not perfectly sanctified. You haven't arrived. The way that you see things is not perfect. It's not just get on board because I've got the right thoughts and you just need to get on board because I've been thinking about this a long time. The Bible's pretty clear that none of us can say that, right? And yet we're all in this congregation, you know, together, and we're supposed to be involved in the sanctification of one another's lives. In the church, the manifold wisdom of God is seen. Look with me on page 48. Um, I'm going to read the first, or 47 actually, I'm going to read the first few paragraphs because it's really helpful here. The supercharged conscience of a Christian. He says, once you come to Christ and receive that cleansing of conscience, does conscience now fall silent? Quite the opposite. Christians are surprised and sometimes discouraged 
to find that the condemnations of conscience are even stronger after becoming a child of God. Perhaps you too have had thoughts like this. If I'm making progress toward holiness with the help of the Holy Spirit, why do I keep feeling like I'm a worse sinner than before? Becoming a Christian was supposed to relieve my conscience. What's going on? I mean, can anyone relate to that picture, right? You're like, I'm a Christian now. Why do I still feel so burdened? Why is this still nagging at me? He goes on, he said, we shouldn't be surprised when this happens because sanctification is progressive. The moment God accepts you as a child, he gives you the greatest gift he could ever give a child to God, his Holy Spirit to dwell in you. A great enough gift that Jesus will actually tell his disciples, guess what? It's good for you that I'm going away. It's good for you. Think about their jaws had to have dropped. This is the man, this is the the man, this is God, whom they've left everything to follow, and now he's saying, it's actually going to be good that I'm going to go away. And you've got to think that they're thinking, how's that good? And he says, because I'm going to send you another. I'm going to send you a comforter, the Holy Spirit, who's going to indwell you. And this is what happens when you become a Christian. The Holy Spirit comes in to encourage you, comfort you, and be your dearest friend. But he also comes in to reveal to you any sin that is robbing you of joy and to lead you into mortal combat against that sin. When the Holy Spirit comes in, he supercharges your consciousness of sin by writing his laws on your heart. This is the difference between the Old Covenant and New Covenant. The law will be written on your heart. That's what it says. He opens your eyes to see sins that you didn't even know were sins, like pride, greed, and covetousness. Paul says this in Romans 7. Uh, when he's battling in Romans 7 within himself, the things I want to do, I don't do. Uh, the things I don't want to do, I do. He says at the beginning, is this the law's problem? Is this the law's fault? And he said, no. The law, if it weren't for the law, I wouldn't know not to covet. I only know not to covet because the law says you shouldn't covet. And here's what it looks like to covet, to want something that's not yours. You know, your, your uh, neighbor's uh, spouse, your neighbor's car, your neighbor, all these things. I don't know that unless God shows me that in his word. Um, he goes on, he says, uh, he reveals to you all the little idols in your heart's idol factory. As you read the Bible every day, you see more and more how good and holy God is and how filthy you are. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Who's there and willing to read? Ben. Ben, read Isaiah 6, and I want you to go verses 1 to uh, 7.
Thanks, Ben. Um, so what's the first thing Isaiah sees? The Lord. Yeah. The first thing he sees, the Lord high and lifted up. And he sees these seraphim day and night. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is filled with his glory. Immediately after seeing the Lord, what does Isaiah see next? His sin. Himself. The closer Isaiah gets to the Lord the more he sees his own sin. That's the only fitting way this should actually work, right? The opposite's going to work too. The more you push the Lord away, the more you leave the presence of the Lord, the more you reject the Lord, the less you spend time reading his word, the less time you spend time with his people. Guess what? Your sin's not going to seem so bad. And in fact, it may not even seem like sin. Just preference. Nah, that's that's not my preference. I don't want that. The closer you get to the Lord, the more you're going to see your sin. And this is important for the conscience. So 48, uh, top of 48, he says, don't expect this struggle to get any easier as you mature in your faith. Don't expect this struggle of the longer I'm a Christian, the more sinful I seem, right? Now, there's obviously a balance to this. Uh, you, could, you could be in unrepentant, you know, un, unconfessed sin and still be putting on a face with going to church, reading your Bible, all those kinds of things. But, but more times than not, that, that, that as you spend time in the Word of God and the, the closer you grow to the Lord, the closer you grow to Christ, the more you see of who Christ is, the more you're going to see yourself as a sinner. That's just how it's going to work. He says, the war against indwelling sin grows only stronger. This is because, once again, this is where one of these graphs is so helpful. So if you're following along on page 48, he says, because your knowledge about God's will in the scriptures usually increases at a faster pace than you can put that knowledge into practice. I think that's really helpful. And I think this graph is really helpful. So let's just, um, let's just use a, another illustration for this. Um, and this is not the, the you know, most theologically rich statement you're going to hear today, uh, but it's very wise. You don't know what you don't know. Simple. You don't know what you don't know, right? If you don't know it, you don't know it. But once your knowledge grows, things change, right? So if I were to go uh, to Lowe's today, and those of you who know me well, my wife could tell you probably the best of all, I'm just not a handy person, I'll be the first to admit, I'm not a handy person. If I needed to do a project that required um, some building and some screws and things like that, I'd go to the aisle in Lowe's and see a whole aisle full of screws and think, huh, well, this one looks good. This looks like it'll put a board together, and I'll just grab that and go. My guess is, though, someone like Jay Nicholson or someone else who works on projects, they go to the, that aisle and they see all of it. And because they've got this knowledge of what they're looking for, because they've got this knowledge of what they're doing, they're looking at it and thinking, for this job, I need this specific one. This is going to most help me on this job. That could be helpful, but this is probably going to be the best one for this job. How does he know that? How would he, how would he buy a different screw for his job than I would? 
he, he experienced. He simply knows it. He's been doing this for a long time. His knowledge is at a certain level that now his practice is following that, and he's able then to make different decisions based on the knowledge that he has because he's got more knowledge. That's just the reality of it. I go there, and I'm ignorant, and I think, that one looks good. I'll use it. And it probably will work, right? But it may not be the best. It may not have have worked the best. And so this idea that your knowledge, as you spend time in God's Word, as you spend time in a healthy church, as you spend time learning more about who God is, you're going to see that you're more sinful. That's going to be one thing you're going to see because you're going to, the closer you get to the Lord, the more you're going to see your own sin. And really, the more you study the scriptures, the more you're probably going to realize, I don't know as much as I thought I did. And that's a good thing too. Humility. The back of every uh, Audubon agenda that we send out has a, uh, I believe it's a Latin phrase. I've never quite asked. Does anyone know what that phrase, how to say that phrase? I can tell you the English version. It's reformed and reforming, right? Reformed and reforming. None of us in this room are going to get to a point of knowledge where we've studied this long enough where you would say, I'm reformed. This is the way to do it. I know it's right. About everything, right? There should be this humility of reforming along the way. This is Romans 12. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's a a lifelong process, right? Paul's going to say we see in a a glass darkly now. That's going to be your whole life. You'll always, in this body of flesh, see dimly. But as as you grow in knowing more about who the Lord is, as you grow more in knowing about his holiness, his goodness, who he is, you should grow in knowing more about your own sinfulness and even growing more suspicious of yourself. That's not a bad thing. To realize my motives aren't always right. I should probably check this. I think I'm right in this, but I should probably take a step back and check it, right? Any questions here so far? Thoughts? Okay. We will keep going. So really it's this... I did want to turn back. Turn back with me a few pages. 27. Go to page 27. Because I think this fits along well with this chapter. This was a couple weeks ago. We, we looked at this briefly. But at the bottom of 27, the big bold, no one's conscience perfectly matches God's will. Just another good reminder. The progressive sanctification of things that even as you grow... At no point is your conscience going to perfectly match God's will. And I think the, uh, the uh, flipped over the page to 28, the, once again, the graph is really helpful. Uh, you've got these triangles that overlap. And so he used the example that you've got Bill's and Annie's conscience. And as you can tell, they're not exactly the same because no two consciences are exactly the same about all things. You don't think the same about every single subject, what's right and wrong the way someone else does. And so you see that they do overlap on areas where they agree, but then there are certain things that they, that they disagree on. But then you also see God's will in there as well. And it's just that reminder that at no point will your conscience perfectly 
match God's will. So the last paragraph on page 28 says, as we come to understand God's revealed will more and more, so think about that graph we just saw, as your knowledge of God's will grows more and more, we will have opportunities to add rules to our conscience that God's word clearly teaches and weed out rules that God's word treats as optional. This is a lifelong process. This is the reformed and reforming. You should always be reforming, renewing your mind as you grow more understanding of God's revealed will. Uh, this will take a lifetime, but we have the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the Church of God to help us. I think this is really helpful because I think this, the rubber meets the road a lot of times on the practical applications of how to apply God's Word. So there's a lot of things about God's Word that we don't necessarily disagree on in terms of, yeah, God's Word says that. So just for example, and, and just think about how general some of the commandments are in the Scripture. Flee sexual immorality. I hope none of us would disagree on that. It's in the Word of God. That's what God's Word says. Flee sexual immorality, period. That's what it says. So we shouldn't disagree that we should remove ourselves from sexual immorality. But then you start getting to the applications of how do you apply that passage. And someone over here says, I apply that, that particular passage. We don't have a TV in our house. We just have chosen that for me to flee sexual immorality, I'm using a hypothetical example, uh, for me to flee sexual immorality, I don't need that in my house perfectly fine. For that brother or sister's conscience, great. You are following the word of the Lord in the way that your conscience sees, and you are growing in sanctification. But for this brother or sister to then come over here and say, you have a TV. What are you doing? You're not fleeing sexual immorality. How can you have that TV in your house and, and, call, and, and say that you're obeying God's word? Well, for this brother or sister, that's not a problem with them. They may very well still be fleeing sexual immorality and in their life. It's not an issue to them. They don't watch things they're not supposed to, and, and they're being obedient. They're, they're honoring the Lord. Both are honoring the Lord. It's once you start taking that from that other person and saying, you have to do it this way, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. A very general commandment, right? Very general some of you guys are very gifted at hospitality. So when you think about loving your neighbor as yourself, having people in your home, cooking for them, doing things like that, that is the way to do it. And that's also a command. Then you look at how other people's maybe practice that same gift, and they can still be hospitable in different ways. But maybe they're not hospitable in the same way, and you think, they must not love, they must not love their neighbor as themselves. They're not, they're not doing what we're doing just have to be very careful with adding those kinds of laws. And a lot, like I said, a lot of times it comes out in the application of things. But as your understanding of God's revealed will grows, you have to understand that your ability to keep up with that is going to lag, right? That's what he's saying. And so in those areas, your conscience is going to condemn you because you're going to realize, I should be doing this. I know it says this, and I'm not. And that's when your conscience is going to condemn you. So what do you do? That's a big question, right? It's one thing to realize that. What, what do you do? Well, look at page 49. A clean conscience for the saved. 
And, and turn with me in your Bibles. We're actually going to spend more time here than in our books. Go with me to 1 John. Yes, sir. Yes, yes. I don't think I was implying that. Did anyone catch that? Okay. No, I'll be I'll, I'll uh, be careful with that. So that that's not what I'm saying. It's not to love your neighbor as yourself is is not to not do anything for your neighbor. But let me ask you this: Is it loving your neighbor for has has himself? to hold them to the exact same standard of every application of God's law as you have. So, for example, is it loving your neighbor as yourself to say, you're not being loving because you're not doing this like I do it? You know, once again, go back to the sexual immorality example. You're not loving me well because I come into your house and you have a TV, and you know I struggle with that, and that's not a good thing. You know, once you start... You know, treating that as something everyone has to obey in the exact same way, that's where you have to be careful. But yeah, the Good Samaritan is a great example of loving your neighbor as yourself. It's sacrificial. It's costly. It's all these things. And some of you guys do that in certain ways, you know, like, for example, hospitality. Some of you guys do it in other ways, like maybe you write notes. No one else in the church may even see it, but you, you, you see loving someone as yourself by encouraging them. You text them. You send them encouragements throughout the day. My guess is no one knows other than you and that person that that's going on. So you just have to be really careful by saying, I don't see you loving your neighbor this way, so therefore you're not loving your neighbor. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, First John, one verses. so what do we do when our conscience condemns us? Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and merciful. Anyone catch? No one's. Thank you. There we go. I was hoping that you wouldn't let me just breeze past that. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the grace of God is revealed. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Okay, so keep those in your mind and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read this just for sake of time, but Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. In the gospel, God is both just and the justifier, and it shows his righteousness. I think we tend to say it shows his mercy and grace, and it does. It shows all those things. But Paul, I mean, did you see how many times he hammers that out, that it's the righteousness of God that is revealed? What's happening when your conscience is condemning you? What's it saying to you? You're not righteous. You're not righteous. And guess what? It's exactly right. You're not righteous in and of yourself. Yes. Yes. What do you mean by that? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So when your conscience condemns you, it's telling you you're not righteous. So what do you need to look to? Who do you need to look to? One who is righteous. This word propitiation, so we didn't go there, but in 1 John 2, so he says you shouldn't sin. You know, if anyone sins, he confesses. But then he goes on to say, but if anyone does sin, you know, that, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who is our propitiation. How can, how can God be just and justify sinners at the same time, right? How can, he, how can he be righteous and let sinners go? In our life, we would never say that's good, right? You put anyone before a judge where they're, they've confessed to the crime, it's clear they committed it, and the, the judge says, you know what, I'm feeling gracious today, don't do it again. Was he merciful? Yes. Was he just? Was he righteous? No. No. So how is God righteous toward sinners? Sin was punished. The debt was canceled, but it wasn't just hidden. Someone else paid it. So Jesus bore the wrath of God so that God can be both righteous, sin's been punished, it's been dealt with, but those who look to Christ, those who look to his righteousness, they're justified. That's freedom for a conscience that condemns you, right? So when your conscience condemns you and says, look what you did, you can say yes and confess the sin. Don't just, don't pass by it. That doesn't mean we don't still confess sin. Yes, I've sinned. Confess it to the Lord. But when it says, look what you did, you speak back, look what Christ did. Look what Christ did. That's where the freedom and the liberty comes. Ben, did you have something? Hmm. 
That's very good. Did, did y'all hear that, the proverb? Um, will you repeat the proverb again loudly? So he who justifies the wicked, condemns the righteous, both are alike. They're an abomination to the Lord. How can God do that? Because that's what God is doing. God is justifying the unrighteous. He does it through Christ. Period. Christ alone. So that when your conscience condemns you, that's who you look to. You look to Christ. And it's going to condemn, once again, brothers and sisters, it's going to happen more often the longer you're a Christian, because the more you grow in knowledge of God and his holiness, the more you're going to see your sinfulness. That's healthy. That's actually a good thing. And yet the more you see your sinfulness, the more you now need to look to Christ. Um, one of the Puritans said this, for every time I look at my sin once, I look at Christ 10 times. That's paraphrased. I may be off, but that's a good uh, model to have. Looking at your sin, it's not bypassing your sin. We're not talking about that. It is dealing with the sin, but it's not staying there. Uh, I want to finish. We're running out of time, but in our books, I thought this was really helpful. This is uh, Pilgrim's Progress, page 51. So good. In one scene of John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, Christian faces off with Apollyon. After Apollyon accurately accuses Christian of a series of sins, so he's accurate. Christian's committed these sins. Christian basically replies, you're right, but I'm actually even worse than that. Um, uh, C.H. Spurgeon has this quote, so good. He says, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. Isn't that good? If any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him. You're actually worse than he even thinks you to be. That's what's going on here. But look at this. That disarming statement sets up the death blow. Apollyon accused, you almost fainted when you first set out, when you almost choked in the swamp of despond. You almost attempted to get rid of your burden in the wrong way instead of patiently waiting for the prince to take it off. You sinfully slept and lost your scroll. You were almost persuaded to go back at the, right, at the side of the lines. And when you talk of your journey and of what you've heard and seen, you inwardly desire your own glory in all you do and say. Wow. All this is true and much more that you have failed to mention, Christian agreed, but the prince whom I now serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. Besides, these infirmities possessed me while I was in your country, for there I allowed them to come in, but I have groaned under them, have been sorry for them, and have, have obtained pardon from my prince. Beautiful. Christian fights the accusations with the gospel. And what's the gospel? Sinners can be made right with God through Christ. Um, the one one uh, recent commentator on the book of Romans, uh, and I'm blanking on his name, but he says, he put it this way. He said, God righteouses the unrighteous, uh, is how he puts it. God righteouses the unrighteous. Uh, I thought that was a really helpful way to do it. How does he do that? Because there was a righteous one who paid the complete penalty, the full debt, who bore the entire wrath of God so that those who look to him, put their faith in him, are freed. So brother or sister, when your conscience condemns you, look to Christ, period. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. We're grateful for your word. Lord, we are grateful for Jesus. 
We are grateful that even now we have someone who is interceding for us at your right hand, who's pleading for you to be merciful and gracious to us, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything he's done as our great high priest. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for salvation in him alone. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, for those who have sensitive consciences, for those who beat themselves up, for those who condemn themselves, may they look to Christ. May they look to Christ and find a Savior who is gentle and lowly. Lord, may they look to you and see that righteousness has been fulfilled, not because of anything we have done, but because of what everything that Christ has done for us. Lord, bless our time as we move on to our time of worship. May Christ be made much of. May Christ increase. May we decrease. In Jesus' name, amen.